This episode of Troxel Podcast is supported by Twin Motion, the simple, real-time rendering solution to create high-quality imagery, client presentations, and interactive experiences that help communicate your design ideas fast. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. And this episode is a conversation with Brian Potter. Brian has a background in structural engineering and is widely known as the author of the Construction Physics Substack newsletter, where he covers topics tackling the interwoven and complex nature of the building industry in the U.S., but in a disarming way, making it extremely approachable. He's got a great style. And the name, it's a newsletter about the forces shaping the construction industry. So there you have it, Construction Physics. Brian is currently the Structural Department Manager at DeVita in Atlanta and has also held a previous position at Katera. In this episode, we dig into why he's writing this newsletter, who's the audience, and what his goals are for it. Turns out it's not too different from the underpinnings of thought as to why I'm doing this podcast, but I'll allow all of that to be revealed during the episode. We also talk about his general outlook regarding the building industry, the parallels I find in his writing regarding the practice of architecture, versus his hands-on experience in the construction industry, which I think is mostly being informed from his time at Katera, and what he's excited about within the industry. So without further ado, I bring you Brian Potter. Brian, welcome to the podcast. It's great to see you and, and have you here. Uh, it's nice to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me. So I think this has come up on some recent episodes, your Substack newsletter. And I mean, it's kind of like a blog, but it's bigger than a blog. So it really is a newsletter. I look forward to getting this thing in my inbox, which I love that email is still useful for something nowadays. Mm. <laughs> and it's your audience, mm-hmm. right? So you kind of know who your audience is and how big that is. But I'm wondering if, you know, before we get into construction physics substack that you write, I would love to kind of get a little bit of an origin story on you and introduce you to our listeners better than I ever could. So straight from from you, can you tell us about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I am a, a structural engineer. I've worked in the industry in various capacities for coming up on about 15 years, which somehow seems impossible, but there you have it. I think kind of the the sort of origin story of the newsletter is that at Prior to my previous or current job, I worked at a company called Katera, which is famous now for being a, you know, another huge venture capital bankruptcy and and flameout. And Katera was a is, is a company that basically was trying to revolutionize the construction industry and do all the things that you know. It seems like from the outside that you should do to try to rationalize the industry. It's like we're going to make buildings. Uh, in factories, the way we build everything else, we're going to just industrialize the entire process and bring it into the 21st century with with all this technology and get all these big economies of scale and just bring down the costs of of, of construction and you know use that just to sort of you know dominate the market. And uh, it basically didn't work out the way they wanted <laughs> they, they uh, that we all hoped that it, it would work. And a part of that, I'm, I'm you know, was certainly just various operational reasons. But then part of it was just that it turns out that this idea has been tried before many, many times by many different 
companies and players and governments in different formats for probably like a hundred years mm-hmm. or more. And it, nobody has really been quite able to crack it. Everybody kind of has some version of the same idea. It's like, ah, we'll just, you know, everything else gets made in factories and factories let us build, build things so much cheaper and so much more efficiently than we can do anything else. And we'll do the same things for buildings and it never quite manages to work. And so, you know, I, I joined Katera cause I thought, you know, the construction industry, you know, there's a lot of that we could be building so much, building so much better than we are. You know, there's so much things seem to be done so inefficiently, there's got to kind of be a better way to do it. And then, so I still kind of believe that after, after, after leaving Katera, but I was like, well, it seems like the way that everybody thinks to solve, we can need to solve this problem doesn't work. Uh, so we kind of, you know, you know, if, if we want to solve this problem, if I want to, you know, work on something that would be able to address these issues, I kind of need to understand how the industry fits together and what it is specifically that makes it so resistant to these kinds of, of changes. And so I just basically started, you know, I had been kind of looking into the history of it and learned about some of these companies that have tried, before, tried it before. And so I just kind of started writing down and documenting uh, what I was learning and kind of trying to work, in, work through the reasons why these other things haven't worked and trying to just basically put together a picture that I can understand how the industry fits together just kind of one little bit at a time and and that's kind of what the newsletter has become that's awesome it it does seem like you're super researched and prepared in the outcomes of these articles and i don't know if you have like a i guess one thing i would love to talk with you about is who's your audience what are your goals with this thing do you have kind of an overarching story arc and where you want to take it um so maybe we just start at the beginning there with who is the audience? Because as I read this, I'm definitely nodding along with what you're saying. And and as I said to you before we hit record was, I think that that's probably a general sense inside the industry, people who are in the echo chamber of maybe technology plus, you know, architecture, construction, engineering. I don't know if you have a better sense of who that audience is or, or what your intended audience, if it's different than that. But like I said, there's this general kind of head nodding, like, yes. This is stuff that we know, but but this is the first time I've seen it articulated so cleanly that I could actually send this to my non-technical or innovative or, you know, a CEO of a company who's got, you know, overseeing a bunch of people moving in a, you know, hopefully similar directions, but but they can easily understand it and digest it as well. So, can you give us some idea about that that whole audience part of the newsletter? Yeah, for for sure. It's it's kind of an interesting cross-section and I kind of you know basically I know about the audits from people kind of who email me and, and people who connect on, on, on LinkedIn or whatever and then just the the, the the sort of addresses the email addresses in the that you show up when you get a right. in the subscriber list right you can kind of get a clue on that so it's yeah it's a fair amount of industry people a lot of other engineers and and architects developers in in that in sort of in that, uh, you know, builders, building product suppliers, stuff like that. It's a fair amount of those. And then it's a fair, it's a fair amount of, I think, either people that are sort of construction adjacent, I would say, or just kind of interested in it for whatever reason. There's a fair amount of, I would, I think like, you know, software developer types, uh, engineers, stuff like that. And then, you know, people in sort of the 
venture capital world, a few of, a few of them uh, read it as well. And I think there's a fair amount of in, you know interest in that kind of this that sort of Silicon Valley mm. side of it to some extent. I think there's a lot of engineers uh, that are software engineers that are just you know have sort of an engineering mindset in general, and maybe they a lot of them are sort of interested in like you know turning their sort of engineering talents to something more physical that they you know that can, they can actually put together with their their hands. And there's a lot of you know engineers that. You sort of like have a visceral reaction to a system that looks like it could be built better or go together mm-hmm. better. And so a lot of if they see the construction, they're like, oh, the, you know, it just it, it feels like, ah, there's got to be a better way to do it. And they sort of get interested, interested in kind of from from the kind of that yeah. side of it. And just, um, you know, just being able to sort of I think there's an interest, you know, in kind of having some sort of explanation that can say, OK, here's how these parts fit together in a way that like you said, that sort of a non-expert can understand. And then I think there's a fair amount of people that are just, yeah, just, you know, interested in buildings, interested in construction, interested in, in housing, and just want to hear sort of a an explanation of how kind of the, you know, how this thing that is such a big part of our lives, but you don't ever really hear ex- explained very well, how kind of it works. So I think it's kind of an interesting cross-section of, of people that read it. So when you started writing it, were you really thinking of a particular person or type of person as the as the consumer of it? Or are you writing it for yourself to kind of memorialize this stuff on the internet? Or what were you thinking? Yeah, so the, the first audience is and always has been myself. I'm trying to like, I'm trying to like work through some particular topic and to the point where I feel like I understand a little bit better how something, you know, how some particular part of the industry works. Or if I don't understand it, I sort of, you know, can sketch out the parts of it enough to I to where I can see, well, here's, you know, at least clarify to, to some extent as to what is what's kind of happening to it or why maybe it's 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 hard to understand. So I'm mostly, yeah, I'm first and foremost just trying to write for myself and, you know, my kind of how I I I have still mostly gauged the success of it is like if you know at the end of the week or whatever it's like okay i now feel like i understand at least this little part a little bit better than that i think i gauge as, as a success and if it's you know if i'm working through something and it's like well i've i've got a lot of words here i've got a lot of you know different little bits of information but it doesn't really fit together it just you know it doesn't quite still make sense to me. That's when I know that I need to kind of keep grinding away at it until it kind of has started to make sense a, a little bit more. And so, yeah, I'm still, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm still, yeah, trying to just write it for myself in a, such the way that like once I've, I've, I've written something it, it, uh, I, you know, there's a part of this that is, has, I've explained satisfactorily. It's interesting to think about just the medium you chose writing. I choose podcasting or video. Uh, I've, I've done something similar with a couple of video lectures that I've put up on YouTube where it was kind of scratching my own itch when it came to topics that had to do with things that were technology, but adjacent to architecture or are going to affect architecture and design in the future, like autonomous vehicles or UAVs or anything like that, where it's like, these are actually things that will change the way buildings are designed, the way people enter buildings, the way deliveries happen, the way that space around buildings is utilized, and kind of going through the process of putting those together and then memorializing it, it's really 
a fascinating kind of cross section through things that people aren't necessarily thinking about every day when they're just working on projects. And I think similarly of what you're putting out, you have this broader perspective where you're talking about construction, you're talking about architecture, you're talking about consultants and engineers and the way that all of these things weave together. That's interesting to me because I, I think most people tend to stay in their lane, but you've stepped back and you're, you're painting a, a larger picture showing the context. And I, I think around one of the, the articles that really resonated with me, uh, the title of it was why it's hard to innovate in construction. It was, it was very like the, you could have switched the word construction out with architecture. Right. And it, I would have felt, I felt very similarly about it. I think that's why I resonated with it so much was because of, I see the parallels and for you to kind of step back and, and talk about it from, I, I assume a lot of this came out of working with Katera because you maybe had more exposure to all of those different lanes running parallel inside one verticalized company, functional or dysfunctional. I don't, you know, at probably every <laughs> level in between. But is that really where that broad kind of cross-sectionality or 30,000 foot level perspective came from? Or did it come from your other experience? Yeah, that's that's part of it for sure. And then part of it is that I have kind of worked at sort of different levels of the industry. I've worked for a design builder who would, you know, basically have a huge amount of uh, the work just internalized at the company. I've worked in, in normal consulting roles. You know, I worked at Katera, which was just the, you know, a giant of a vertical integration. Uh, and I've worked as like a subcontractor just as like a, you know, material supplier and stuff like that. So I've kind of been able to see it from kind of a few different angles. And yeah, definitely some part of that was just from Katera and some of my other experience. And then just, yeah, the things that you hear when you try to, you know, talk to other other stakeholders or developers or, or you know, contractors or whatever. And, you know, you hear when you say, well, I don't want to, you know, use this system because, you know, if, if, if something goes wrong, it's, it's going to sort of throw off our huge timeline and cost all this money and, and, and whatever like that, we'll, we'll stick to what we know. Yeah. So it's just kind of, yeah, I would say a combination of mm -hmm. those things. Yeah. I, I, so, so let's, let's jump into this, this article about the difficulty of, of innovating. And I think, you know, I kind of walk away with it with a bit of a pessimistic take, which is, I think what a lot of the tech companies who are trying to jump into this who don't come from these industries don't really understand how big the problem is to tackle and that's why they tend to fail more than succeed in it and i know we have a bunch we have a great community of architecture and technologists and construction that are tackling smaller pieces and not trying to tackle the whole thing in pretty successful ways but i think when i read through your you're not you you don't come across as pessimistic about it but i think you very clearly state the issues, the challenges that are against disruption within the industry. And so I'm just wondering, like, your, you know, in, in around those ideas, specifically around innovation in construction or innovation in the architectural field, where it's, it's a very old field. And we have these kind of unstated assumptions and expectations between different silos who are delivering, you know, the, the design process or the building to a client in the end. And, and because those things are unstated, they're not really well codified for an outsider to see or even know that it exists. So like, what's your general take from, from the stuff that you're writing and, and actually piecing together and connecting all these dots? Is it pessimistic or is it optimistic or somewhere in between or? Yeah. So yeah, I, you know, in a certain sense it is pessimistic cause it's right. You know, 
it it basically just is you know this is hard you think it's not going to be hard to change it or you think i you know i will be able to do it where other people have not yeah exactly like you said it's don't quite understand the difficulty of 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 what they're trying to accomplish but i think in another sense it's you know in it it provides like a i think i you know in in illustrating what the difficulty is that actually kind of helps to show what the path forward is because i think you know i think an overly pessimistic view that i don't share is that a lot of people just think that construction is so conservative and is just unwilling to change and it's just it's just kind of baked into the culture and that i think would would be pessimistic because if you know if that was true it would there would not be an obvious way to change it right like how do you change the you know just the 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 feelings of like you know a million develop developers or contractors right there's no obvious way to do that but if you can but i think if you can kind of lay this out and then say you know actually you know if you're if you are can save somebody money or save somebody time or provide a better product people will are willing to kind of use your system it's just hard to actually reliably do that what you're you know and explain exactly why that is hard it kind of illustrates a way to to do it in in explaining how it is difficult so i think you know it's yeah it's 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 pessimistic but it's also in in illustrating the difficulties it 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 shows kind of the way forward yeah i mean some a point that you made and it's a story that i you know you're talking about evolution like small pieces versus a revolution which seems like what Katera was was trying to do and, and various other players are trying to do by by creating a vertical and and doing everything controlling everything as much as they possibly can themselves not trying to do every single piece right i think you even said that in one of your articles and it might even have been this one uh why would they want to do that part right that doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. as far as actually i think it was the actual construction part of it was that what it, it was on Katera's behalf Originally, they were just going to do the materials sourcing and would like be the logistics and material supplier. Uh, and they sort of pivoted to just doing all the sort of doing all the construction and the design and everything mm-hmm. like that, but not doing the sort of real estate development okay. portion of it, which, yeah, which some people thought seemed like leaving money on the table. I sort of think you can make an argument for why that's a, a, a rational calculus for what they were trying to do. Yeah. And, and I think getting back to this idea of like trying to do all the pieces, I, I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine who, and we do smaller construction projects ourselves. I, I do have a bit of history with design build. And also like, I just, I have this garage full of tools, right? Like I got to justify their existence. Mm-hmm. So, uh, or my ownership <laughs> of them, not necessarily their existence, but you know, for for we do this for reasons like it could be controlling our own labor costs it could be having our design intent realized because it's hard to convey all of that like do all the drawings so that somebody can you know ignore some of them and do it the other do it a different way or make it look different than than my vision is or like i said maybe even just justify owning the tools that we own or maybe it's just some <laughs> level of self masochism but Recently, we were talking about the realities of construction that are so much different than knowledge work. And the construction process has this lack, and I think you even referred to this too, as like this lack of an undo button. It Sitting mm-hmm. in a, behind a computer, we get so trained, you know, to have your fingers on, you know, control Z. And 
and you talk about, you know, like if somebody pours the concrete wrong, you got to like tear it all out or you got to find another solution. And it's a huge, huge, huge problem. In addition to the specific knowledge to do that thing well, in addition to the tooling and, you know, everybody having performed the work before that to get it to the point where it needs to be for those people to come in and do their work on time, on schedule, so that the next people can come in. And like these layers and layers of complexity in the building process do not lend themselves very well to a a revolution in construction. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a lot of embedded knowledge in there that kind of gets glossed over, I think, by a lot of these, these grand visions that aren't necessarily well thought out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and construction is kind of interesting because it's, it's evolved over the years, but it's still kind of at its heart, a sort of craft based industry right where you're relying on somebody's expertise and knowledge for how to do something and that sort of expertise and knowledge is what fills in a lot of the gaps of you know of of things that aren't defined on the drawings you know things that the architect or the engineer or whatever doesn't specify because this you know you're giving sort of the you know a half complete set of instructions to somebody who is an expert and they say okay well i know how to fill this in and how to do this and how to lay this out And, you know, in general, we don't, when we think of things being made or fabricated today, we don't really necessarily think of things like that. We think of it as more, you know, the most central example of something being built, right, is like an assembly line or like a factory where some top down design process has laid out exactly how it is going to go through and exactly what every step is and exactly what each person is going to do at each stage. And, um, you know, you can kind of define exactly what that movement, you know, down to the individual, like movement of what the person is going to be doing. And you can kind of, you know, just build up your entire process of fabrication that way. And that's just not how it works in construction. It's still at its heart, kind of a a craft-based thing. And just like you can't, it's very hard to, hard to like codify every single step a person it 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 that a person on site is going to do just like mm-hmm. if you're an architect or whatever it's very hard to describe you know very precisely exactly what your process is right it's a combination of intuition and experience and just kind of oh this looks right doesn't mm-hmm. kind of look right and you should kind of maybe maybe move this you know move this parapet over here or you know eliminate this load bearing wall at the bottom floor and really annoy the engineer and um, thanks for poking that in there real quick <laughs> 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 and so but because it's kind of built on this sort of craft method of production it does make it a little bit resistant to uh, you know sort of a rationalization or kind of top-down changes because there's you know you have to get over this hump where you sort of spell all these things out that normally you don't have to yeah, do and, and there is a a pretty heavy dose of touchy feeliness to that process right which is you can't explain it. it. It comes through years of experience on top of years of training to get to the point where that stuff just kind of happens organically. And it's a, not a straight path from dot to dot. It's a very, you know, I, this word comes up a lot on this podcast, but the circuitous path that you mm-hmm. can't see moving forward. You just know that it's going to be messy and you're okay with that as an architect. And trying to rationalize all that, as you said, is it's kind of it's like a pipe dream <laughs> to to think of it. And definitely like if, if somebody can explain something that they want, I mean, I don't think there are too many 
examples that can't be codified into uh, some kind of an algorithm or some kind of a program. But it doesn't mean it's going to be like that every time. I think we we get comfortable with that, but we also don't don't even know necessarily all the different inputs and experiences that are going to be put into this recipe ahead of time. So things mm-hmm. do happen on some level in a very touchy-feely way and organic way to come to some inexplicable outcome. And 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 I mm. think sometimes we're just along for the ride. We're just kind of facilitating it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's 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 really interesting because yeah, part of it is just like you can't, you know, you know, you can't explain how you know how to how to do what you do, right? It's like baked into it's baked into at a level of your of your brain that doesn't necessarily operate or is connected to being able to be described it with, you know, language or something like that. So it's it's very hard to like kind of tease out uh exactly you know how you how you can uh yeah you know turn this into like a yeah like a top-down mechanical Mm -hmm. process Mm -hmm. um in some ways kind of what it you know what it requires is you know rethinking the entire thing from you know if you want to innovate you have to kind of rethink from the from the from the ground up and think about okay i don't know how to like mechanize or rationalize this you know weird semi-conscious you know skill that people are doing to get this building to go together so i need to i need to start from the bottom and think about okay what can i mechanize and what can i easily define the process for and then use that to build up my building system um but of course that's really expensive and and hard to do as well yeah and and i would assume like some t- on some levels, this is coming from within the industry. On some levels, it's coming like pressure from the outside, where people see this idea that you know this this is a huge industry. There's a lot of waste in the industry. There's a lot of profits potentially that could be made by figuring out ways to reduce waste or inefficiency or whatever. But then there's also kind of the owner side of thing, and and I don't know. Have you addressed kind of the owner side of things in your newsletter at all? Um. I've talked a little bit about developers and, and real estate stuff, but I haven't dived super deep into the it. The reason I ask is because, you know, you, you mentioned Connects Tech and it, as a structural engineer, I'm sure you're somewhat familiar mm-hmm. with it. Have you used it on any projects? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have not, but yeah. And you kind of something. even refer to, you know, it's this, this rethinking of the way structure goes together, which has a ripple effect throughout the everything in the building. Mm-hmm. If that's the bones of the building, everything else has to connect to it and work around it. So so mm-hmm. therefore, it hasn't been used on a lot of projects, and and you know, you, I think you said hundreds, maybe, maybe. Let's take a short break from the conversation to talk about this episode's sponsor. Let's talk ArcViz technology, powered by the near limitless Unreal Engine. Our friends at Twinmotion offer a fast and easy way to produce stunning real time visualizations and immersive experiences for your clients. Twinmotion gives you the tools you need to make faster decisions and relay information to your clients in a way that instantly speaks to them. Breathe life into your scene by changing the season, the weather, the time of day, just by moving a slider, immersing your client in a way that they'll love and, more importantly, be able to truly picture themselves in. Seriously, it's that easy. You have to try it to believe it. So why not share your design with stakeholders and collaborative reviews and edit your scene together? I'm a huge fan of this. There's no better way to get buy-in than by making your clients feel part of the development process. Right now, they're running an exclusive free trial for listeners of this show, which you can head to twinmotion.link slash TRXL 
to get your hands on. Once again, that's twinmotion.link slash TRXL. And now let's get back to our conversation. I was working on some projects where that was being dictated by the owner. And that's why I bring this up from an owner side of things, because I think some innovation, you know, because it, we're not necessarily incentivized to innovate <laughs> within our industry. We're, we're used to working a certain way. We're used to doing the contracts and delivering the deliverables based on this way that we've always done it. And then an owner, like in, in this case, it's a, it's a hospital chain and they're coming together as a serial builder saying, you know, we want to build a lot and we want to do it faster and we want to do it cheaper. And in one, in one way they're saying, we want to pay you less to do it. But you talk about this idea (laughs) of risk and the reverse moral hazard topic, right? You've got this, your, the onus is on us. The risk is being put on us to kind of redesign all of our details around new systems and implement these new systems, make sure they can work and deliver a product to a customer. Product is a, is a touchy word in the architectural sense. But mm-hmm. if, you know, when, when they're driving this kind of prescriptively, and if you look far enough down the road, they're basically saying, like, we want to get this to a point where we don't need you anymore. We, want, we mm-hmm. do want a product. We don't want a process. And so not only are they saying, you know, we actually want to pay you less now, we want to pay you even less in the future to figure this out now. And you have to take the risk of it now to figure it out and basically warranty it for, you know, whatever the standard of service is, 10 years. And so, I mean, have you thought about it from that perspective when it comes to when when clients are demanding modularized or panelized or, you know, when we talk about prefabrication and modular and all of these up-and-coming, innovative, efficiency-creating materials and systems and workflows inside our construction projects, where does that ultimately leave us as professionals? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the the rough part about if you're in, like, a really uh, competitive industry, right? Is it just, you know, every little inch that you grab is ultimately going to be taken by somebody else and it's just profit and is just being relentlessly ground down. <laughs> I mean, I guess I would, I guess I would say I would, I would sort of be so pessimistic that it maybe comes on this out on, you know, it, it comes out the other side as, as optimism that that's already happening to the industry to such an extent that in some ways is, is not a problem at all. Right. We're already seeing like, you know, and, you know, design fees just being slowly, slowly ground down. <laughs> you know, I used to, you know, I used to, where I, a, a place I used to work, uh, the sort of person in charge said that they used to, used to try to try to get, you know, 1% of the, of the building cost as engineering fees. And you don't, you don't, uh, you don't get anywhere there's, near there's, that. There's uh, not much room to go below that either. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, you know, and that, that was something you saw at Katerra is that people wanting to join, um, because just, yeah, just, just of, because of the, you know, we had a really good time recruiting architects and engineers just because one of the things that they were being sold to candidates was like, Hey, we're going to free you from this relentless grind of your fees being slowly squished into dust. So yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of the, uh, you know, the sort of so pessimistic, the very dark race to the bottom Uh, vision, but you know, the kind of the idea is that, you know, if you can get, if you can get this system that becomes, so efficient and so much, you know, 
faster and, and, and less expensive to do, that really opens up a lot of possibilities. You know, maybe it doesn't look the same way right now. Like, you know, that, that maybe is not great for if you're a consulting architect and engineer or whatever, but it does open up a lot of possibilities in the engineering and architecture and sort of, sort of the design space, right? Like if you can build something much, much less expensively, that gives you a lot more freedom to build a lot of new and cool, and interesting stuff that maybe you couldn't have done before. So, you know, it, it may not be, it, you know, it may be pessimistic if from the perspective inside the current structure of the industry, but I think larger scale and, and longer term, I think, you know, being able to do stuff cheaper is going to make a lot of cool things happen. I, I agree with that. I think one of the models we have to get our minds out of is that every building or piece of architecture needs to be unique in some way. Right. And mm-hmm. I assume that's kind of what Katera was going after was kind of a reproducibility on some level. I know it's every site's different and every climate zone's different and every building set of building codes are regionally different a little bit and energy codes definitely are. And there's, there's a lot of st- things still playing into this, but I would assume at some level that was an attempt that they were trying to make was that if we can, if we can lessen the expense, we can actually do a lot more of this because I mean, everybody's kind of seen the projections 2050. We got to have a lot more housing as an example, um, because there's gonna be a lot more people on the planet. And if we can raise the level of that housing, we can have better outcomes for those people who are living in those things to contribute to society and pay taxes and make things better. I mean, that's kind of a big, big giant umbrella statement, but you know, very generalized, but it seems like we are leaving a lot on the table by doing these very, you know, bespoke, unique projects and starting from scratch every single time versus another approach. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think there's, you know, to a large extent, there is a fair a fair amount of like repeatability on the design side. Um, there are a lot of developers, you know, you know, residential developers or like commercial or you know developers that they will have like a you know a sort of off the shelf productized design that they use. Like you know, here's our you know gas station design mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, this is our standard product, and we're going to put one you know five hundred of these down all over the all over the U.S. and we're going to tweak it slightly based on uh, whatever the uh, local building codes require and whatever the local, you know, zoning body says we need to have. But, you know, we have an off-the-shelf one. And for, you know, so, you know, you do kind of see that to to, to some extent. Um, and then, I, as I'm sure you know, you kind of see a lot of repeatability at like a level down from the mm-hmm. buildings, right? Like you see a lot of like, you know, developers or whatever who have like a unit library that they use right and they may you know they may arrange those in different ways than what you know what piece of land they were able to get and how high this zoning body lets them build and kind of you know what what they're able to negotiate when the people come to the you know the uh uh planning meetings and complain until the developer knocks 100 units off (laughs) the development or whatever you know, but it's, you know, they have unit A and unit B and unit C3 and unit C4 and, and stuff like that. So you do see a kind of a lot of repeatability. It just like, it kind of exists at a lower level than that of the actual building is kind of how I mm-hmm. see it have shaken, shaken out. And even where it is at the whole building, you do have to kind of have that, you know, level of, you know, you start with like a basic, you know, a, a basic chassis or whatever, and you do have to kind of customize it um, 
based on whatever the customer requires or whatever the whatever the jurisdiction wants. Yeah. So so what are you excited about when it comes to construction industry and innovation within or or any other kind of topic around the kind of things that you're writing about? Because I assume that some of, there's got to be some sparks and, and things that go off as you're writing and starting to connect things together as, as you figure that out and do the research. Sure. There's a few different things. One that I've kind of encountered a few different times is that construction, you know, construction and industrialization of building and sort of prefabrication is really, really constricted by um, just transport mm-hmm. costs. You, you know, a lot of like the sort of big, heavy, bulky stuff, You, it's very hard to sort of manufacture that farther than like a day's drive from the from the building site, mm-hmm. basically. And so you see all these sort of building products and, you know, you know, that are manufactured basically within three to 500 miles of wherever the building site is. Right. And that has all sorts of downstream effects on the industry. Um, it, it, it's hard to get real true economies of scale. And uh, with, with when we have such a sort of a relatively circumscribed market and stuff like that. So I'm kind of interested in anything that would like dramatically change transportation costs and dramatically reduce them. And so I've kind of been, you know, something I, I wonder is if you have, you know, a fleet of, you know, electric self-driving trucks or whatever. And so now your gas prices are way, way lower. And now you, you know, your delivery price costs are way, way lower. What is that? What is the new calculus of, you know, shippability of sort of a big bulky product look like, you know, does that cut it in half? Does it bring it down by 90%? And does, you know, what does that enable, right? Does that enable like sort of the centralization and, and mass production of things that previously you had to sort of make in small quantities, and then just kind of make in maybe a less efficient way than than would be ideal. Kind of another one is you see a lot of companies doing some sort of flavor of this where I, right now the one really kind of big limitation in construction is that uh, the sort of information flow from, you know, just the information flow in general is very, very, uh, it leaves kind of a lot to be desired just between disciplines and then especially trying to get information from the job site as the building goes up, right? It's very hard to get a, you know, to know exactly where everything has been placed and exactly the current state mm-hmm. of, of everything and then whether things have been installed like really precisely right. And just, you know, what is everybody doing and how is this building going? And I, gosh, I wish I knew, <laughs> you know, so I think, but there's, I think there's a lot of, you know, that's the sort of thing that can be essentially like a software problem. And I think there's a kind of a lot of, different uh companies trying to you know hack off different pieces of that problem right you're kind of starting to see a lot better uh you know job site cameras right that can really just record things just perpetually and i think you're kind of starting to see some companies there's i feel like there's a company that does this but the name escapes me that are kind of like layering a little bit of like machine learning or computer vision on Mm -hmm. top of that so you can not only do you have a picture of it you can say oh this beam is here but it should be you know 12 inches Mm -hmm. over or you know they are currently on level three but they should be on you know they currently have half of level three done but they should have 75 percent of level three done and just you know getting a much richer set of data based on that's um for you know how the building is is actually going a rich sort of granular data set you're kind of seeing things like you know companies that make sensors that like attach to like the crane so you know exactly what you're crane is picking and what is it is being used to to sort of lift and can we sort of squeeze some more 
efficiency out of our crane fix because, you know, the crane is super expensive, right? And so you need to really maximize how much you use it for and making sure you use it for the things that most, you know, are most important, like the big heavy stuff that you can't lift kind of otherwise. And so I kind of am wondering if if we're going to be able to now have this really rich level of data granularity for knowing exactly what is what is um, going on at a given at a given construction site, and are you going to be able to sort of see interesting things built on top of that? Are we going to see ways that we can feed that back into sort of our design documents and, and Revit models and stuff like that? And are we going to be able to like sort of build things that are able to manage the flow of work more effectively because we know exactly where things are going? Yeah, so that's kind of another one that I think has a uh, you know I, I kind of foresee some potential mm-hmm. for. I could I can envision like a SpaceX like or a NASA like mission control right with with all these people sitting around just monitoring telemetry of every single thing going on on the job site all the time and there's got to be so much analysis and kind of predictive analysis coming you know out of those what those sensors are picking up or you know what like boston dynamics has the the spot robot the four-legged dog right Mm -hmm. and it can go around with lidar and scan the building like you're talking about and it can walk over things it can go up and down stairs so it, it has this kind of extra maneuverability that, that certain other robotic types don't. So it can be scanning. They've actually, I think, re- recently announced uh, some kind of an API partnership, I think, with Drone Deploy, which typically just used to do drones, right? But similar thing where it's like you define the flight path and now you define the path of the, the walking robot so that it's repeatable over and over and over again. So at night when nobody's working on the building, it's going through and scanning it and doing exactly what you said it's using its sensors to kind of say okay this is since yesterday now we can actually do an overlay and see what's happened and then compare that against the critical path schedule so that we are ensuring that things aren't getting missed and we're on track or we're not what are we going to do about it Um, it it is kind of interesting that that level of analytics is we're going there with with the construction process yeah for sure yeah, so I'll be I'll, I'll just be interested to see yeah, kind of yeah, what comes Well, because to I think when, in one of the articles that you had, you talked about all the the unforeseen stuff that comes up during a construction project, right? It's like rain, okay. Now now we're going to push everything back. And okay, this sub didn't show up this day. Okay, now we got to push everything back. Oh, these materials didn't show up on time. Now we got to push everything back and it just becomes like this on every project, it happens at some level, right? And so anything, you're, mm-hmm. what you're talking about is the types of things in, in that second example of anything that we can do to make sure those things don't happen are huge benefits in the overall, I mean, schedule, profitability, everything that, that a contractor is trying to do. And the contractor is taking this stuff on. Like that's where it's happening during that phase of the project. And so they're the ones who are really seeing the benefits of that stuff I'm wondering how that stuff can start to ripple back into the design phase so that even bigger gains could actually happen. Like when, when, because architects are so divorced from means and methods, not a lot, it can't go there. That's where design build maybe has an opportunity or, um, you know, any of the other advanced, more advanced delivery methods, lean construction, things like that, where those people are in the room during the design phase and those things are being figured out. I wonder if there's, things that we can learn from those future processes that can go back and inform the earlier processes so that those things can happen better during construction. I just throwing it out there. (laughs) 
Yeah, f- for sure. And yeah, kind of one thing that you see is that a lot of this like design build and really level of tight coordination, you kind of see it a lot on, you know, like a really complex mm-hmm. project, yeah. right? Or something that's where, where this sort of, you know, paying the cost of sort of the, the quote unquote non-standard way of building is, is worth it because there's so much more stuff to coordinate that there's so many more potential things that can go wrong that it's worth it to kind of, yeah, like you said, get everybody that all out into, the same, into the yeah. same room. But so if you kind of have this, you know, if you have this sort of new set of data or, a you know, a better way of analyzing or accessing existing data, can that sort of trickle out, trickle down into, you know, you know, less complex building type building types or typologies that still nonetheless have a lot of coordination difficulties, right? Like most buildings are not super complex, right? Like the vast majority of construction is either, you know, light framed wood for residential or, you know, it's like a metal mm-hmm. building, right? To get, combine, that's probably 80% mm-hmm. of construction in the US in terms of number of buildings, maybe not in terms of dollars, you know, but, um, you know, if, if it's like trivial to just have like a data feed that yeah it tells you exactly where everything is going because right now that's one thing that's holding back like stuff like bim right is it's getting this like really you know getting the design a set of design data to really model like where every single pipe is going and stuff like that is really a lot of cost and expense uh to, to kind of do but if you can get this thing where you know where everything is going very cheaply that probably enables yeah, like you say, a lot of different stuff that otherwise wouldn't be possible. And it does make sense on the complex projects because, you know, I, where architecture has come from was design intent was put into drawings and drawings were fairly loose and they were they were about intent. They weren't about exactitudes of every little thing. Now we see BIM models at higher and higher levels of detail. We see drawings with more and more information in them. A lot of it's CYA type stuff, but but we're still kind of, missing the point of and i guess where design build the the processes that i've been through that have been the most kind of refreshing is when you do get the insight of the contractor early where you do get that experience instead of this bifurcated process which is you know going back to the old school of design intent you figure it out in the field that doesn't now we're, we're doing everything we can to figure it out ahead of time and that's kind of a on some level, a new frontier for architects who never had to do that traditionally. It was the, a left up to the contractor to figure out where the ducks would run and where the pipes would go. And now our consultants are modeling every single thing, you know, above two inches or whatever it is that the level of detail requires. But that's kind of new, new I'm in air quotes, you know, new frontier for architects and not having to previously have to figure that stuff out. So during that design build process, where it is way more complex and you got to fit a lot more stuff into a very tight space because it, it is a more complex building. If it's a hospital or, or whatever, I did a science lab. I mean, and there's so much going on inside Mm -hmm. a science lab building with gas and waste and exhaust and, you know, all of that stuff that it really requires a super high level of coordination. And just Mm -hmm. to get those insights pulled in early is so beneficial. Um, And that's the kind of stuff that, we used to just rely on it would happen at some point and I didn't have to know it all now. So that, that to me is, is a little bit hope. There's some hope in that is that if, if we do start to pull the two ends of these rope closer together, 
that that information transfer can happen. And if that kind of thing can be codified in some way um, so that the next team can build on it and not have to relearn it over and over and over again, that would be, that would be fantastic. Yeah. And that, you know, that, you know, the person on site will figure it out. You know, that actually works okay if you're using like a very tried and true building system, right? If you're doing, you know, if you're doing another metal mm-hmm. building or if you're doing like, you know, a, a, a wood truss frame building or whatever, that's probably, you know, most buildings don't need to do something super innovative right. or different, right? They, you know, they need to kind of, they're just going to do sort of a tried and true system. And if you're using one of those, it's, it's fine, right? Because you know, you've been, you've been on, you know, 20 different projects and they all, you kind of know how they go together. The contractor kind of knows how to go together. It's, you know, it's okay to leave a lot of stuff unsaid in that situation. But then of course, that is something that makes it much harder to, uh, to do something new and innovative, mm-hmm. right? Because now you do have to sort of, if you're going to do something in a different way than you've done it before, well, now you do need to spell everything right. out and label every individual right. screw and, 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 and stuff like that. So if you can find a way to sort of, yeah, make that cheaper and make that process easier, it kind of, yeah, I think it probably opens up some, some new frontiers. Well, maybe we can, we can start to wrap up here and, and I, there's overall, you know, we've all seen that, that graph of the productivity and efficiency inside our industry go down you know, slightly over the last, what is it, 60 years or so. And I'm just wondering, is that, is that your general sense of where things are today? Is, are we, are we, or are we, are we getting better or are we, so one of the, one of my hypotheses is that because there's so much additional complexity and requirements and tools and layers of risk and maybe, maybe even more players that we're actually watering it down even more and and it's getting even harder to kind of overcome i'm just wondering where what your general sense is about the overall direction of our industry yeah kind of my sense is um it basically is improving it just enough so as to not have not the cost the costs don't spiral Mm -hmm. out of control like there's this famous there's this sort of famous graph where it shows i think you know from 1970 here's how a, a, a big list of different things, right? College and, and medical expenses and housing and, you know, cars and appliances and furniture and all this stuff. And like, you know, everything that can be sort of like manufactured has sort of gone mm-hmm. down in price or cost. And everything that is sort of a service industry has gone way up in cost. Like college is more expensive. Medical care is, is more expensive, all that, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And what's interesting about housing is that it's kind of right in the middle. If you like of inflation adjusted, it's basically flat. And so we're, what it kind of seems like to me is that uh, we're able to, the industry is sort of able to have introduce enough innovation that is basically able to prevent, prevent costs from kind of spiraling out of control, but has not that, you know, the things have not been able to improve to the point where it's like, you know, things are just dramatically cheaper now than they were in 1970 or whatever. Kind of, if you, if you, if you look kind of the, the costs are, you know, roughly comparable in terms of like cost per square foot or something mm-hmm. like that. They were maybe 40 years ago and even maybe longer, like 70 years ago or something like that. The costs are kind of in the same, in a, in a similar ballpark. And of course now houses are, in some ways they're, they're much better, right? Um, 
you know, they're, they're much bigger. Insulation is, is, is much better and stuff like that. Your heating system probably works a lot better. Electricity is more reliable, you know, kind of, uh, stuff like that. So, you know, cautiously optimistic. I don't see like, you know, it doesn't seem like a, uh, a, a, a catastrophic, uh, situation to me, but I do think, you know, it's, it does seem like there is room to be able to be, to be doing things better. There's room. Yeah. Yeah. It's like ordering a coffee with room. There's gotta be some room. I, I think that when you look at those other things that you mentioned, which are kind of, pro, you know, it's not the service side, but the product side. If you look back 15 years ago, like cell phones, way different cars, pretty different, you know, electrification of, of automobiles, uh, computers in automobiles, computers in our pockets. And, and it seems like there's this pressure upon our industry to be more like that, right? Like that's definitely where that perspective, I guess, is rooted, it seems like, because people like to buy things. They don't like to buy processes, for sure, it's, you know, as far as general consumers, at least. And they're not comfortable with it. It's very black box. It's very risky. It's my entire life savings is going into this thing. It's not just like this thing I can spend a little bit of money every month or every year on like a subscription service. It's it's like really scary. And And so we're kind of stuck in between, you know, the built environment makes for better communities, makes for better outcomes for people. It could be students, it could be healthcare, it could be all kinds of things. And then there's all of this pressure from this, you know, productized kind of method of thinking. And so it just seems like there's, that's where the pressure to compete is coming from. And it's, and I think what you're spelling out in the newsletter is that we're different. And I don't want to say we're special, right? But because we are, we are forced to compete. Like this is something we are very competitive about. But at the same time, it's like it's it's a very different formula than these other things that people are used to looking at. And and so maybe just any thoughts on that as we as we finish up today? Yeah, a, a couple of thoughts is that yeah, people, you know, some, something I think a lot a lot about related to construction is like in this sort of age of age of exploration when like these countries would send out these you know ships to go all over the world and just have these incredibly dangerous voyages and spend all this money basically just to get spices and silks and kind of stuff that seems like it's not that important and kind of what i kind of you know it's it's in some sense seems crazy that you would send you know send you know a fleet of ships at the risk of putting all these sailors at huge risk just to get some spice from the other side of the world but kind of what i take away from that is that it's certain things that people experience in their environment and sort of their quality of life they just put a massive amount of value Mm -hmm. on that and i think the sort of the space that they want to live in and make a part of their lives is 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 kind of one of those things right people want a a space that makes them feel a certain way and they can feel comfortable in and it's worth it to have like be able to sort of get exactly the sort of thing that they want, right? Like there's the reason that HGTV is like the most popular uh, cable, cable Ouch. network. Yeah. Cringe for architects. You know, right pe- there. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you know, but I mean, is, you know, it's the same thing. It's people, you know, crafting artistic yeah. and, you know, interesting spaces. You know, that's just, that's something that's really important to people, right? That's just this based on how they spend their money and how they spend their their time and and it's important that you know the construction industry is able to deliver that for for people 
Um, you know, it's not just a thing that you can sort of, well, people will have to learn to accept this uniform, <laughs> these uniform buildings if they want to get them affordable. I think that's not the answer. I think you need to find a way to sort of be able to kind of deliver the level yeah. of customization and the level of just like care that people kind of require in the sort of space that they're going to spend a huge portion of their yeah. lives in is going to have a huge effect on just how they, you know, their day-to-day -day, uh, experience. And so it kind of, you know, and I, you know, the way I think about it is, can you get it to level of like clothing, right? Where this is some, you know, it, it's something that has been like, the cost has dropped so much that, you know, clothing is, you know, is not quite like, you know, quote unquote, too cheap to meter, but it's almost right. Like you can, oh, yeah. you know, for, you know, unless you want to, for like a high fashion brand, like you can get clothing like in, you know, it's, it's very, very inexpensive, but that doesn't screen off different, you know, people are still able to get it in like any style that they want, you know, to reflect exactly, you know, this, their sort of taste and their sort of preferences. And they're, we're able to, you know, get both those, right. We're able to get a massive level of customization to the, that lets you kind of get the exact sort of thing that you want. And we're able to sort of deliver it extremely inexpensively. Can you get the sort of, you know, can you have a production process for housing and buildings that does that same thing? Yeah, it, I, it's interesting. It definitely has to be a levels above generic, and it and at the same time, it can't be the one-off, perfect thing that nobody can afford. Right? It's got to be somewhere in between. And to, it's interesting. My wife just brought up the other day. You know, when in the fifties, uh, a woman would have like five dresses in the closet. That was it. Nowadays, what does your closet look like? insane how how much there's there's mountains of clothing in everybody's house <laughs> to your point right which is you know it's uh it's so accessible you can play with it and that that's mm -hmm. kind of i think what we're talking about with with space and i agree on the it needs to be personal i think we've definitely felt that in the last year and a half now that we spend a lot more time in our in our very own space own it rent it whatever it's it's way more apparent that how much that that space matters. Whereas before you, it might've been a lot more transitory and for the last year, it's been a lot more permanent feeling. So it, 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 I think a lot of people poured a lot of money into personalization and upgrades in their own personal space for that very reason, because it became very obvious because they're spending a lot more time in it. So anyway, random thoughts there at the end, but I really appreciate you spending the time today. And, and again, I very much enjoying the Substack that you write. It's called construction physics I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Is there, is there anywhere else that people can follow what you're doing online? Nope. That's uh, pretty much the main place. Yeah. That, that's uh, I, I have my email and, and, and LinkedIn on, on there. So you, if you want to contact me, that that's the, where that contact info is, but otherwise, yeah, it's pretty much just the newsletter. Awesome. And, and it seems like people have a pretty healthy comment section going onto your, your articles. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Li li yeah. There's been quite a few uh, interesting comments and, yeah, I've really been able to sort of, a lot of stuff I've been able to kind of learn from. Awesome. So, um, yeah. We'll keep up what you're working on. It's been amazing. And thanks for spending the time with us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Twin Motion for their support of this episode of Troxel Podcast. You can visit twinmotion.link slash TRXL, or I've made it easy for you. Just click the link in the show notes and download your copy of Twin Motion for free. 
This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon. <laughs>